going on here? Okay, it says you're live. Good. It is. It's live. There it is. No, let me get to the. Uh... Yeah, you're on uh, Psalm one nineteen fifty seven. Fifty seven. Here we go. Half. Outside divide. Half. It's half. Kent wall. You are my portion, O Lord. I have promised to obey your words. I have sought your face with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. I have considered my ways and have turned my steps to your statutes. I will hasten and not delay to obey your commands. Though the wicked bind me with ropes, I will not forget your law. At midnight, I rise to give you thanks for your righteous law. I am a friend to all who fear you, to all who follow your precepts. The earth is filled with your love. O oh Lord, teach me your decrees. Amen. Okay. Yours says mercy. Mercy, yes. Okay, we have, like, a lot of prayer requests today. Graham's daughter, Graham in Scotland. Graham's daughter is having difficulty in her pregnancy. Maybe a blood clot in her lungs. She must be exposed to radioactive substances to check it out that could potentially lead to leukemia for the child. So they're worried about that. Wants a prayer for that. Jolene has chronic headaches and peripheral neuropathy. Amy has very painful stomach flare-ups. It's been going on for a while, and they do not know what's going on. Uh, Bill Ackerley is on um, a vent with COVID here in Sarasota. Mackenzie, who is 15 years old, is having a tumor removed out of her jaw tomorrow morning and will have uh, her jaw reconstructed with a bone from her leg. And so we want to have her in prayer. I think it's 7 o'clock in the morning, if I remember right. Um, Will Groban in uh, Kansas, just want to add him into prayer. Nothing, nothing specific. I just emailed him today to see how he was and just keep him in prayer. And then Drew, who uh, is a retired military officer, he's... Uh, uh, biking across North Dakota starting at 4 a.m. tomorrow morning. And uh, this is kind of a, a venture of a lifetime, and so he's been practicing for it, and that'll be a two-day journey. We want to keep him in prayer. And then Karen M. is being mentally challenged by what the world is dishing out to the people. And it's, it's giving her grief. It's giving a lot of people grief. Obviously, if you saw, I did a special report yesterday uh, a midweek report and people in Australia are just being abused, but it doesn't make it any easier to know other people are going through bad times. Each one of us has to suffer through it, so we want to keep Karen in prayer. And then Don and Pam emailed me just a while ago, and they have a cold. And so they, you know, and colds can be just as bad as the flu, so I hope that they'll get better without that, but keep them in prayer. And uh, we'll go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll read that. Heavenly Father, we certainly pray for these people. Lots of people on the list and lots of other people that have got difficulties that you know about. So we would lift them up and pray that your hand would be with them for healing and for safety for uh, Drew as he rides his bike and for uh, uh, overcoming any challenge that may arise in the ministry of Will Groban. He's such a nice guy, and uh, he's uh, doing your work, Lord, in a church in Kansas. And we would just pray that he would continue to be uh, effective in that, and that the congregation would understand that they have a talented man and uh, as their pastor. And Lord, we uh, also pray for this class, that your hand would be upon it, and that uh, you would just help us to uh, handle your word properly, carefully, and uh, without uh, swaying from what you would have for us. But if for any reason we have something that is incorrect, please alert us to that. And Lord, we just thank you for this chance to be in your presence and to share your word. We thank you in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Let me see if that was important. If not, it might just be them talking. Oh, okay. Um, oh, Jody is going to not be here tonight. So, so she is in big oh, trouble. Susan made it. She's, no, mom's no, only going to be here for just a very short time. So uh, we have mom and Kathleen here. Mom did show up on time. She came in just as you were reading, so, reading, so I, I couldn't yell you. at her. And um, uh, we'll read this year and this day in Christian history, and then we'll get started. Today is the uh, 13th, 12th, 12th. Today is the 12th. Uh, let's see here. August 12th. It says, God's dealings with us may be a painful process. Is it raining? It is. It's yes. starting to rain. So if you start hearing bangs and booms, it means that we're uh, uh, having thunder. And if we get cut off, I apologize. We are recording, but that'll stop too if the power goes out. So uh, if the class gets interrupted, it's probably because of the storm and we apologize in advance. Okay, August 12th, God's dealings with us may be a painful process. Yeah, I would think so. After serving in the Marines and completing law school, Chuck Colson became a senior partner in a prestigious Washington, D.C. law firm. Then in 1969, he received a phone call that changed the course of his life. President Richard Nixon needed him. A Wall Street Journal headline summed up his role as special counsel to the president. Nixon hatchet man. Call it what you will. Chuck Colson handles president's dirty work. Then came the Watergate scandal, which I will remind you is not even close to what's going on in the White House right now in America, right. but that will never be brought out to light. I just want you to know, take everything in its perspective, is that what happened at Watergate may have been wrong, but it is certainly not like what's happening right now. Uh, let's see here. So anyway, uh, then came the Watergate scandal, and Colson resigned his position to form his own law firm. In March of 1973, he went to visit Tom Phillips, president of the Raytheon Company, and his client before Colson had served in the White House. Warned by the executive vice president that Phillips had changed because of religious experience, Colson mentioned that he had heard that Phillips had been in, become involved in some religious activities. Phillips replied, yes, that's true. Chuck, I have accepted Jesus Christ. I've committed my life to him, and it has been the most marvelous experience of my whole life. Colson was stunned and turned the conversation back to more comfortable subjects. As Phillips later walked him to the door, he added, I'd like to tell you the whole story someday, Chuck. I had gotten to the point where I didn't think my life was worth living. Now everything has changed. The reference to an empty life struck a raw nerve with Chuck. That summer, while on vacation with his wife in the Boston area to get away from the Watergate hearings, Chuck found himself calling Tom Phillips, who invited him to his home the evening of August 12, 1973. Phillips straightforwardly told Chuck about Jesus and read to him from C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. Lewis's description of pride as a cancer that prevents a person from knowing God hit Chuck like a torpedo. Phillips gave Chuck a copy of the book and invited him back. Back in his car, Chuck began crying uncontrollably, uncontrollably and prayed to God over and over through his tears, Take me, take me. Chuck's heart had been pierced, but his mind still needed to be persuaded. He studied mere Christianity until a short time later. Words that he initially hadn't understood fell easily from his lips. Lord Jesus, I believe you. I accept you. Please come into my life. I commit it to you. Colson soon became part of a small prayer group of five, including Democrat Senator Harold Hughes of Iowa and Republican Congressman Al Quay of Minnesota. Supported by these new brothers in Christ, Colson decided to plead guilty to a Watergate crime of which he had not been charged. 
passing derogatory information to the press about Daniel Ellsberg, an anti-war activist. He was sentenced to a prison term of one to three years. The former special counsel to the president was put in charge of the washing machine at Maxwell Federal Prison in Alabama. After Chuck had been in prison for nearly seven months, his family began falling apart. His wife was near the breaking point, and his son was in jail for narcotics possession. At this point, Al Kui called and said, there's an old statute someone told me about. I'm going to ask the president if I can serve the rest of your term for you. That night, overwhelmed, Chuck Colson completely surrendered himself to God. Two days later, the judge at his trial released him from prison because of his family problems. As he left prison, a Christian federal marshal told him that he had felt God would set him free that day. Colson replied, thank you, brother, but he did it two nights ago. In 1976, Chuck Colson founded Prison Fellowship, which ministers in 600 prisons in 88 countries with 50,000 volunteers. Colson was prepared for this role in God's kingdom through a painful process. They ask, what do you believe your role in God's kingdom is? Have you experienced painful periods of preparation? Can you see God's hand through it all? And Philippians 1, 12 through 14, I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, that everything that has happened to me here has helped to spread the good news. And because of my imprisonment, many of the Christians here have gained confidence and become more bold in telling others about Christ. Good stuff. Chuck Colson. All right, we are in Ephesians chapter 4. How are you doing today? Good evening. How are you? All right, where are you coming from? Uh, Sarasota. Oh, you're from Sarasota. Well, I live here. I'm from Philadelphia. Oh, okay. I, I feel go. sorry for you. <laughs> Don't worry. My my father was from that area. What part of uh, Philadelphia? So I, I, grew, I was born in Jersey, New Jersey, but I grew up outside the suburbs of Philadelphia, Delaware County. Delaware County. I don't know. My my grandfather, Germantown, right? Yes, I think that, that area. So. Okay, yeah. So that's, uh, that's north of the city. Okay. In the city, yeah. Philadelphia. yeah. I went there, I went to all the capitals in 2010 and preached at all of them. And yeah, so I was in Philadelphia just for a day. And I went to Harrisburg. Uh, that's right. But I stayed with a girl that was I was friends with on Facebook, a Hispanic girl. And they were in the really poorest part of town. And I'm telling you what, I went all around the country and people said, stay with me, stay with me. When I went around, nobody treated me like this girl and her husband and children. I'd never been treated so beautifully. When we left, she took her last $10 and she's, Gave it to her husband. Said, I want you to go and she, and then she cooked us this giant meal that we could eat as we traveled around. Me and a boy that was traveling with me. Never forgot that. Yeah. Just unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. So Philadelphia, and he's from New Jersey, so I feel bad for yeah. both of you on that. Too. I, I have to admit it. It's part of my uh, my uh, rehabilitation. Oh, What's your name? Charles. Char there you go, Charles, right here. Yeah. Actually, Charlie. But all right, we're in Ephesians four. We've got a Bible over there somewhere. If you, I don't, they're laying all over the place. So uh, where are we? We're in Ephesians four. Sixteen. Sixteen. Let's well, see here. Move it back to the uh, fourteen. All right, fourteen. Okay. Oh yes, I have one. Thank you. I'm sorry. Okay, so uh, going back to fourteen, the beginning of the paragraph. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up in him who is the head, that is Christ. 16. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. 
They stop there? Okay, here we go. 16, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. So, mm. yeah, they, they have a little more there than... Jumbled it up. Yeah. It's, well, that's, you know, sometimes they reword the sentences, and so they carry it into a different verse because they have to. But right. anyway, okay, here we next, go. The what? What does your next one do? Seven. Uh, 17. Let me see here. Give me one second. I've lost my place. Hang on. 17 begins with, this I say, therefore. So I tell you this. And okay. All right. Well, there we go. Okay. 16. Uh, the words, from whom are speaking of Christ... From the previous verse, where he said, But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ, from whom the whole body joined together, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. So speaking of Christ, it is from Christ that the whole body finds its source, its growth, its strength, and its direction. This whole body is said to be joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. However, this is not really a great translation of these words. The Greek says, every joint of supply. The sustenance is not from the joints, what every joint supplies, but it is from Christ through each joint of supply. See the difference? And so it's just little, not great wording from the uh, New King James Version. Each person who fulfills a role within the church does so based on what Christ has given them not based on what they have as independent of Christ. Everything goes back to Christ. This is the idea which is later given in Colossians chapter 2. Go there, it says in Colossians chapter... Flip over there. 19. And it says here, And not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God very consistent the way he writes, as Christ supplies so that nutrient is passed on through the joints, according to the effective working, as Paul says, according to the effective working by which every part does its share. What the Lord provides is given in order to be effectively worked out through the various parts of the body. Those who are evangelists should evangelize. Those who are preachers should preach. Those who are teachers should teach, and so on. Two things should be noted concerning this. First, there are those who have abilities, but who use them in inappropriate ways. Women teaching men is prohibited in Scripture. That's in 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 and 12. If a man comes to Christ through the teaching of a woman preacher in a church, it cannot be said that the end justifies the means. You're violating Scripture. The scripture is given by God through inspiration. And so God will never contradict himself. It doesn't mean that the person isn't saved that was led to a person through Christ, I mean through a woman, but it does mean that the end does not justify the means and the woman has violated scripture in the process. So um, the disobedience of this preacher cannot be regarded as effective working. Even if the outcome is effective, the working itself cannot be regarded as effective working. And that goes through with anything. I don't care what approach you take in whatever doctrinal issue it is, if you come to a good end, it does not mean that it was effectively worked to that good end if it did not adhere to Scripture. Okay, that's an important precept that we must remember always. Scripture must define what we do, it must define how we do it, and it must be in accord 
with, or our actions must be in accord with it. Secondly, many have been given the abilities to work effectively within the body. However, if they do not employ what they have been given in an effective manner, it cannot be said that they are working effectively. In other words, free will and proper adherence to God's word are considerations of what is being said here. Only when the two are correctly aligned can it be said that the work is truly effective. Somebody is a great preacher or teacher, and he does not do a good job preparing for his sermons, okay? That would be what I'm talking about now. It's not that the person is doing something wrong. He's just not doing it to the fullest potential, okay? And because of that, the sermons are not as effective or as, as well put together as they could be because he's lazy. He's not effectively working. Once again, the end doesn't justify the means, and the means must be based on the desired ends. When I sit down to type my sermons on Monday morning, it is all that I want to think about. I don't want to be interrupted. I don't want to stop and, you know, go out and mow the lawn or do something until I finish. And if it starts at 3 in the morning and it goes until 6 o'clock at night, which has happened, that is the way it is. And when Hideko has dinner ready, I say, just put it down. I'll be to bed when I'm done, okay? But I won't get up and have dinner with my wife if I'm typing a sermon and I have not finished it. It's not going to happen because God's word has to take preeminence over all other things. But that's the exception. This Monday oh, was great. I got done at like two o'clock. Everything, everything was done by two o'clock. I'm talking about the sermon typing. And so everything else got done earlier. And I had a little bit of free time on Monday afternoon, which is really rare. Thank you, Lord. Um, okay, so uh, only then can it be said that each is doing his share. Each person must be able to say, I have everything I can into what I am doing to glorify the Lord through what I'm doing. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter if you're the one that cleans the toilets in the church you attend. It doesn't matter if you're the one that, you know, I was in wastewater treatment, you know, for 20 years. I got dirty plenty of times. And when I met the Lord and people uh, would always try to get you to fall, they'd always try to get you to slip up and, uh, and you just keep your testimony. And sometimes it wasn't easy. And now we have the church, and I'm still the one that cleans the toilets. I do it at the mall I take care of every single day of my, six days a week, not every day, six days a week. That's what I do. And I want it to be the best, cleanest toilet I can make it every single day when I'm there. And sometimes it's kind of brutal because people in public bathrooms do not care about you. They do not care about you. So I can tell you that right now. But I won't get into any of the details, but trust me on that. People don't care. Uh, what? Oh, yeah, I've you've been, been in them, you know. Exactly. Yeah, it's terrible. Um, oh, I better put a check mark here. Oh, before we go on, Jody, I think you heard me say, Jody emailed just as we were getting started, and she is not here tonight. I told you Don and Pam are sick. Uh, Jody is, uh, uh, she emailed, but we want to keep her in prayer tonight. And the reason why is because she, unless things have changed, is starting her new job tomorrow. Okay. Yes. So, I mean, she got back, as she said, uh, the Lord has provided things to get her going, to get her started, and all of a sudden she gets a job. Now, it's a, a Christian company. Um, I, I don't know, you know, pay and all that kind of stuff. That's not my business, but I can say that uh, it, it, for at least to start her job, it's a Christian company. You all know Good News Pest Solution. This is a true Christian company. This isn't somebody that just, oh, we're Christians so that they can get people to, to sign up for them. This guy... He does our uh, uh, pest control, and he's done it for years. And very good Christian company. There's, they have very high ideals there. So at least she's got her foot into a good job 
while she's getting started. So keep her in prayer for her first day on the job tomorrow, unless that's changed. I mean, maybe somebody offered her another job or I don't know what, but I heard on Monday that she had gotten it. Tomorrow she starts. So good stuff there. Um, when those things are properly on display, the things we just talked about, you know, not doing what is wrong in order to, you know, come to a good end and not doing what is, you know, less than your best to come to a good end. When those things are properly on display and effectively being worked out, it, as Paul says, he causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. It is true that the body may have grown through the preaching of a female from the pulpit, but it cannot be said that it was for the edifying of itself in love. Adherence to God's word is a demonstration of love. Everybody agree with that? Anybody disagree with that? If you're not adhering to God's word, you are not demonstrating love for God who gave his word. And we all fail in that. I'm not trying to point fingers at anybody. I'm not trying to accuse. But if God's word says, do not do this thing, and we do it, we are not showing love for God. And when God says, I want you to do this thing, and we don't do it, you are not showing love for God. He sent, He loved us enough to send his son to die for us while we were still sinners. That is true love, and he wants us to emulate that in our lives. And so we need to know the word, we need to apply the word to our lives, and we need to make absolutely sure that we live by the word in the proper context. Like I say, we're not going to be building an ark today because that's a different dispensation and something else happened there. The law is a different dispensation. We're not under the law. We are under grace. So we have to live by what the epistles in the New Testament tell us to live by. Everything in context, every word of God is for us, but not everyone is intended for us in the same way at the same time. But if we are doing what the word says in accordance with the epistles, which are given for the church age, then we are demonstrating love for God. Okay, read that again. Adherence to God's word is a demonstration of love. Failure to adhere to it is a demonstration of selfish intent. A woman knows that it says a woman is not to teach or have authority over a man. They know that they say that, they stand in the pulpit and they violate that. It is a demonstration of selfish intent. I am putting myself above God's word, okay? That can be taken no other way. If they know what the Bible says, because they're teachers, they probably should know what the Bible says, and they do it anyway, they are not demonstrating love for God. They are demonstrating selfish intent. And that can be anybody. So I'm using that as one example, but there are 10,000 examples of things that we could do or not do within the church that will demonstrate either we are abiding by God's word or we are abiding by what we want to do despite God's word. Okay, the selfish intent is more harmful than one might first realize. As an example, should a man come to the Lord through the preaching of a woman and later he realizes that his conversion was based on another's disobedience, true harm actually results in several ways which can be easily thought through. Thus, rather than edification, there is confusion. Rather than love, there is bitterness. And I've heard of this. People are in uh, another country. They come through to the Lord through preaching. They decide they want to go to school. They want to learn the word. And then they find out that what they had heard was incorrect, even if it led to a good end. And it causes confusion in their theology. And they have to step back and they have to say, I need to reevaluate. And some of them will say, well, you know, they don't think the end justifies the means or it doesn't justify the means. And so they just think, well, it must be okay. And therefore, and I will say this and it will upset somebody that's listening right now. And that's fine. I, I'm not here to please everybody. But the church has 
fallen its greatest fall in history, wherever it is in history, when women are ordained as pastors. In whatever country that happens, very quickly, the uh, church continues to fall quicker and quicker. It happened in America in the 1900s with the first woman being ordained, and since then the church has almost totally apostatized in many denominations. And that is the start. People may do it for a good reason. They may think they want to be, you know, whatever. Whatever they think, they are violating God's word. And once you have put your foot in that door, that door now will never shut again. And everything after that begins to exponentially fall apart. That's not being a misogynist. It's not being a bigamist or any of those. What bigamy is? That's the wrong word. Um, anyway, it's not being any of those things. It is being obedient to God's word when we do not do what God's word forbids. Okay. And I don't mean to be angry to people about that, and I'm not going to point my fingers at them, but when they email me with that question, I say, I did not write these words in 1 Timothy 2. The Lord inspired Paul to write them, and they are in the Word, and I will not violate them to please you. I'm not going to do it. And that's my answer to them on every issue that comes up like that, okay? It doesn't matter what the issue is. You know, and people will ask me, are my dogs going to heaven or something like that? And my answer is generally the same. You know, I understand that people have hearts for their animals, okay? And so I will uh, uh, empathize with them. You know, I've lost lots of my wonderful dogs, and I miss them. But I say the Bible is not about the redemption of dogs. The Bible does not give any hint about the disposition of dogs after they die. There is one verse in the book of Ecclesiastes that addresses animals, and it's put in the form of a question. Does the spirit of man ascend and the spirit of an animal descend? And that is it. That's the only thing that you could possibly use within Scripture to justify dogs going to heaven or not going to heaven or anything else. The Bible does not address the issue, and so I will not answer the issue. It's not my business to answer that question. The Bible is about the redemption of man, and that is what I am concerned with. Everything else, you're just going to have to wait and find out. Okay? That's because anything else would be a wrong answer. It would be leading somebody down a false hope, and I won't do that. So, uh, let's see here. Um, where were we? Edifying itself in love. Yes. Um, adherence to God's word. Yes. Based on another's disobedience, true harm actually results. There can be no true holding fast to the head, meaning Christ. There can be, that's Paul's words, holding fast to the head. There can be no true holding fast to the head in disobedience. It is not possible. It is also lacking when someone neglects to exercise the gifts which they have been given. So disobedience or not exercising the gifts you have been given are both in the same general uh, flavor, okay? You want to use yourself to the glory of God in whatever it is. You know, we've got somebody sitting in this room right now that has every possible testimony that a human being can have for people that are in a bad situation. Have you been in jail? He's been in jail. Have you been addicted to this or that? He's been addicted to this and that and that, okay? Have you ever had cancer? He's got cancer, okay? Every single possible thing that can happen in your life, this gentleman has, and he can help people with that. And the good thing about him is he uses it to help people with their own problems every chance he gets. And that is what we are to do. We are to take our lives and dedicate them to the glory of God to instruct others, to help others, and to build others up with what our gift is. If your gift is preaching, use it. If your gift is giving, give, whatever. But that is what we are to do with our lives, through the glory of God, always.
And he does it in love. He does it in love. That's a fact. Life application. Here it is. There can be no true love in an action which is willfully disobedient to God's word because God's word is an extension of who God is. Jesus explained this in John 14, 15. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Keeping the commands of the Lord in proper context, please remember that, demonstrates love for the Lord. Let us put aside both laziness and pride and strive to be obedient to the word. Woo! This is showing love for him. Okay, that kind of scared me there. I wasn't prepared for it. So there we go. Okay, we are in verse 417. Okay, and I'll say this before you read that. If the power goes out and if we leave, we're not going to restart the stream. Okay, so if the class ends suddenly, I'm talking to the people streaming right now. If the class ends suddenly, we apologize. We'll see you here on Sunday morning. Okay, uh, you never know. We, this one road in all of Sarasota has a different um, uh, power. Instead of um, uh, 115, whatever, this one road in all of Sarasota has something like 126 or something. It's a different power. And so if it goes out, it is not coming back on. They've got to get special. I don't know why. It's just I know that because when we did this, they had to do special things for this building that they don't have to do anywhere else because of the power line that was originally run down the back of Superior Avenue. Anyway, so it's, it's some funny thing that certain refrigerators won't work here. Certain hot water heaters won't work here. You have to make sure that it is compatible with whatever this power supply is here. So um, we'll just, we'll end if uh, it power goes out. Okay. Four, seven, shocking. Yeah, how shocking. <laughs> Such a so funny I, guy. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Okay, that's almost identical. I don't know why they cut that out of the other one, but this is, this I, that's the NIV, is that correct? Sure is. Okay, all right. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. Very close, but a little different at the end. 417. In verses 4, 1 through 3, Paul began a practical application for our Christian walk. That was then laid aside for the next 13 verses as he moved into a doctrinal analysis of the unity of the various parts which make up the church. Now, having said that, and it's something I try to uh, repeat from time to time, is the church is what? What is the church? Well, it's Christ's body, but more specifically, it is the people. It's not a building. Right. People too often think of the church as a building. Okay, the church is the people. When uh, Paul writes a letter to the uh, the church in, he's speaking to the saints specifically. He's not speaking about their household. It's not speaking about the gymnasium they meet in or anything like that. Speaking to the people. The church is the people. Okay, in verses 4, 13, Paul began, oh, I read that, um, various parts of the church. With that complete... He now reverts back to his practical application of what our spiritual walk should entail. This I say, therefore, that's Paul's words, is stated as a summary thought concerning that doctrinal analysis of the previous 13 verses. The structure is, one, walk this way, verses 1 through 3. Okay, we did that a couple weeks ago. Two, the message of unity of the various parts, that's verses 4 through 16. And then three, based on verses 4 through 16, you now know the reason that you should walk in this way. Okay, so he digresses from what he is doing, you think, and he's not making any uh, logical point, and then he sums up what he just digressed for, and that's what he's doing right now. 
to bolster his proclamation, he next says, and testify in the Lord. He is speaking to the apostle, I'm sorry, as the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, with the authority of the Lord Jesus. He is, as he says, in the Lord, in a unique position which allows him to speak with authority concerning these now saved believers. Okay? All of this is... Whoa, we almost lost it there. Is the streaming still going? Yeah, I think so. Okay. To bolster his proclamation, he next says, and, oh, I read that, as, uh, as of this, I'm sorry, I'm going to read that. That kind of freaked me out with the uh, power. All of this is for the practical application of their life walk based on the inserted comments in verses 4 through 16. Those words were given to show them that they were not aliens to the covenant. Gentiles are not alien. And what covenant are we speaking about? The uh, Mosaic. No, 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 no. They're in the yeah, new right. covenant. Oh, this is they're yeah, not okay. the Gentiles are not alien to the covenant. And where is the covenant first introduced? Jeremiah. Jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-one. That's right. Behold, I make a new covenant with Israel and Judah. Israel and Judah. Didn't make it with the Gentiles. Christ made the covenant with Israel and Judah. And we are grafted into the commonwealth. We don't replace the Jews. We are grafted into the commonwealth of what God has promised to Israel and Judah. Okay, so I'll read that again now. Those words were given to show them that they were not aliens to the covenant. They are grafted and they are a part of the commonwealth of Israel. But they are included in it. They were not outside of the house of God, but they are a part of it. They are not servants within the family of God, but are rather sons through adoption. Paul notes to them that because of this unity, you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. They had been accepted into the family of God. They were now a part of the living temple of God, and they were members of this covenant community with full rights and benefits to be derived from this standing. Every Gentile on this planet, doesn't matter where you're from, I've been all over Asia. I, we have a church in Kenya right now. We've got Isaac in Uganda. We've got people down in South America that the church doesn't support. They're just people that I know. But it doesn't matter where you're from. In this world, you are a part of the covenant of what God is doing in Christ if you have called on Christ. Okay? Their Christian life was to be a pilgrimage and a journey in this world. Thus, they should not be like the other Gentiles who were outside of what God is doing in the church. The others walk, as Paul says, in the futility of their mind. There's a whole world full of futility in people's minds. You know what happened today at 11 o'clock? They had Give Christianity the Finger Day on Facebook. Yeah. Right. People all over the world got together, and they allow that on Facebook, but they won't allow you to have a... Can you imagine? So at 11 o'clock today, all the people in this, this, this group on Facebook give Christianity the finger day. So there you go. This, this is the thinking of people in the world today, the futility of their mind. Okay. One thing that doesn't happen, well, it does, because there's some Christians that are Westboro Baptist. Anyway, there are Christians that obviously don't live according to what Christ says. And, you know, I'm not here to question their Christianity or their, their true uh, belief or not belief. But for the most part, you're not going to find Christians saying, give this religion or give that religion the finger. Instead, we go and we say, you know, we have the answer. You're lost in what you're believing, okay? And um, that would be, uh, I talked to somebody, I had to, Southbridge, the uh, uh, hair salon yesterday got new air conditioner, 
20 years old. That old one lasted 20 years. Anyway, they replaced it yesterday. I was on the roof three hours with them while they were replacing it. Wow, it was hot up there. Anyway, um, uh, I asked one of the guys because they had time when I could talk to them. I'm not going to interrupt people while they're working because that's stealing from the, the job. But I asked him, I said, well, what if you die tomorrow? What's going to happen to you? And he says, oh, I, I get to go to heaven. I said, why? He says, because I'm a good guy. <laughs> and that took a little bit of convincing, you know, that that isn't the answer. I said, because I hate to tell you, but Hitler thought he was a good guy, didn't he? Nobody thinks oh, I'm a bad guy. I mean, unless you're a Christian, you know you're a bad guy. Everybody <laughs> thinks you're a good guy. So it took a while to convince him of why that was an inappropriate way of thinking. And then I said, and I can tell you how to become a good guy in Christ. And so, it, it, you know, that's all you need to do is to first determine what the problem is and then to give them the solution. And I, I told him, I hope that you will consider this and I hope that you will put yourself aside because self will always get in the way of a good relationship with God. It is all about Christ and not about us at all. And uh, so I don't remember the point I was making here. Oh, yeah, in the futility of their mind. If you're not in Christ, you don't understand that there's a problem between you and God. There's a disconnect which you cannot fix. It's impossible. You've committed a sin. I, that's the first thing I always ask people. Have you ever told a lie? Yeah, well, then you've broken the law. You've broken one commandment. You've broken the whole commandment. It's done. And you can't go back in time and undo what you've done. You're still going forward, and God is outside of time, and he can't arbitrarily forgive somebody that's not a just God. Because, And the exa example you want to give somebody is, what if I killed your mother today? Would you say, oh, tell the judge, he doesn't need to be judged? Of course not. You're going to say, that guy killed my mother. I want justice. Well, how much more unfair would it be for God to just overlook our sins? It wouldn't be a just judge. Those sins must be judged. How is that going to happen? What's either going to happen in you or it's going to happen in Christ. That's it. Those are the only two options. You cannot have anybody else take your sin debt because they have their own sin debt. Only Christ came without sin, lived without sin, and died without sin, and only Christ can remove that sin. And until you get that right, you are in the futility of your thinking. Your mind is not right with God, but Christ can make it right. And that's what we need to do is to make sure that we get right with Jesus, and everything else will fall into place. So in my Catholic upbringing, I get up. So every Friday night, we would all jump in the car, go down to the church, and go to confession. And you confess, you know, your sin. And you, like, it was never, it, it never failed. You say, you know. You Hail know, Mary. You repeat the same. Yeah. Three Hail Marys, four Our Fathers, and, you know, uh, uh, you know, sins are forgiven. Like, that's it? <laughs> you know, it's like. It's it like, doesn't work. It does not work. It doesn't work. It gives everyone this, like, false sense of security. It, false sense of, it's just like infant baptism. It's a false sense of security. I was baptized, so I'm going to heaven. It's, it, we get our thinking wrong. We need to come to Christ. He baptizes us. And then we can go out and have water baptism as a demonstration of what has changed inside of us. But, I, you know, it, it's heartbreaking to see. And, you know, I can look at my own self and my life and how I wasted it. But when you come into Christ and you see the difference and then you see how futile the thinking of the world is, it's just heartbreaking. So keep telling people about Jesus. Um, this futility that we were just talking about. This futility will be explained in the next two verses, and we're going to have time for them. It is also what Paul wrote in the first chapter of his letter to the Romans, starting with Romans 1.18. He also writes about it elsewhere in his epistles. 
The Greek word, which is translated as futility, is a type of aimlessness because there is no final purpose or meaningful end. The walk of Gentiles is a walk of nonsense because it is that of a transitory existence which ends without any hope. Paul is saying to them that in Christ, this is no longer the case. Now think of all the people out there, and you know, not to be demeaning of them, but you got people walking around all over the place right now, and they are scared to death. You know, whether it's, you know, whether it's true or not is irrelevant. They are scared to death. And when you know Christ and you know that you are going to die and be with Jesus, you don't need to be scared anymore. You don't need to be fearful. You don't need to be uh, worrying about whether you're going to get this sickness or whether you're going to get run over on the road. It doesn't matter because we're all going to die. Our end is coming. And people, they, they look at something like what's going on in the world right now and they say, I've got to get vaccinated, or I've got to hide myself, or I've got to do this or that to keep myself safe, when in fact they could walk out the door right now and get hit by lightning, and that's the end of them. There is not two seconds of life guaranteed to you. There is nothing guaranteed to you. And so as long as you understand that, that you are going to die, and that you are going to be with Jesus, then it doesn't, let's take a minute, let's just, let's, before we go on, let's just go there. I mean, it, it's such a reassuring set of verses 1 Corinthians 15, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, it's pretty long, I'm reading it in my evening reading right now though, and so I'll finish it up tonight, but it says there, um, let's see, where do I want to start here, I'm not even going to read that, we'll just go to, uh, we'll start in verse 46, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, he's speaking about Adam was first, and then we have our birth, okay, and afterward the spiritual, the first man was of the earth, that's Adam, made of dust, the second man is the Lord from heaven, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, here it is, so also are those who are heavenly. If you're in Christ, you are already positionally heavenly. We've seen that already in the book of Ephesians chapter 2. It says, and as we have borne the image of the man of dust, which we all do, every one of us, Acts 17, 26, 27, 28, we're all one blood, we're all descended from one man, okay? We have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of of the heavenly man. It's a guarantee. There is nothing in heaven or on earth that can stop this from happening in our lives if we have called on Jesus Christ. Nothing will ever thwart that. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, thank goodness, because I don't want this body forever, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed for this corruptible you know, this morning i was at the mall and the guys that they uh the air conditioner first they had Sutter roofing come out they took out the air conditioner okay they have to get a crane out there and then they have the roofing guys come in and repair the roof i'd never known this before how that the process they went through they the thing's been sitting there for 20 years, so the base under it is bad. It was a piece of plywood, and then they put a metal thing over that, and they caulk it all up. And they, So it was bad, okay? So they have to have a roofer come in and fix that. And then after that, they put on the metal thing. They caulk everything. They, the crane guy comes back. He's going to another job while the roofing guys are in. And then the crane guy comes back. These crane guys must, I don't know how they do it, but they balance everything so perfectly. He shows back upright at the right time. 
lifts this thing up, puts it on the thing, and then the electricians and the air conditioner guys, three guys were working on it, and they did a great job, had everything set and done. But the roofing guys took the plywood, this 20-year-old plywood, which was all gooey, and it was just disgusting. It was very heavy because they'd been sitting in water for 20 years, and they uh, threw it into the recycle dumpster instead of the garbage dumpster. And I can't allow that. I, you know, I could have just said, well, they'll, they'll take care of it at the recycle place, but I can't do that. So I climbed in and pulled this big, heavy thing out, and I hurt my back. Oh, stupid. Anyway, so that's the point I'm making is here it says, um, for this corruptible must put on incorruption. Thank God. Because when you have yourself get old and you start falling apart with things like that, you realize what, oh, you know about that one, don't you? I, Anyway, okay, so um, this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written. Ooh, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? So you've got death state of the physical man. You've got Hades, the place, the repository of the dead. Neither has any victory because of Jesus Christ. Thank God for Jesus. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. If you have the law, you've got sin. If sin is imputed, you are going to be cast into the lake of fire. You need to have a new economy, a new birth, and you are no longer under law. You are in Christ. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Thank God for Jesus Christ. That's why we can smoke. Goodbye, Miss Garrett. Have a wonderful night. She's going to go to an apostate church and watch somebody get ordained. So I love you. Have a nice night. Yeah. So. With incorruption, you can do foolish things. Yes, you can do foolish things with incorruption. I, I did a foolish thing, what was it, yesterday morning, and boy, or was it that, yeah, yesterday morning. Yeah, I, uh, I, and it was so hot up there. Oh, my goodness, you know, you get on a roof, but at least a couple years ago, they put that white coating on there. They, instead of replacing the whole roof, they put on that white stuff that seals it, and it's guaranteed for like 10 more years or something. But I'm going to tell you what, when it rains like it did this past week, it is so slippery. It, it, and I told these guys, you'd be really careful when you get near your ladder. Because if you, you get on one foot, you'll go right off that building. And so they were all very careful. But wow, I'm telling you, that is some slippery stuff up there. It's kind of like a rubber thing. But that's what they did. Anybody roofs in Florida, I just... Oh, man, so roofers sorry. in Florida are, they're some hardy folks, I'll tell you that. But, you know, they, they did such a good job. And you want to make, this is one thing you want to try to do. I mean, I don't know if you all do this, but when somebody does a job, even though it's, you know, I just take care of them all, but I was asked to supervise the job and make sure they didn't do everything. The first thing I did before I did anything else, I got home, did some work around the lawn because I was already gross. And then I went inside and the first thing I did was call both companies and said, your guys did a great job. And they need to be recognized. I mean, they're, they're getting paid a, 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 what do you call it, an hourly wage. They're out there in the heat, and most people never see what they're doing. They just, oh, take care of it, and we'll see you later, you know? They all did a really good, they kept everything clean. They were polite. It was just a very good job. So it was the first thing I did was call both of the companies, and I called the mall manager and told her that, you know, everything went well. But 
they try to remember when somebody does a good job, try to have them recognized. Um, all right, so um, let's see here. Um, Paul writes about that in his epistles. Uh, did I finish? Where are we? Um, Romans, yes, Romans 18, he writes about it in his epistles. The Greek word, which is translated as futility, the word we've been talking about, indicates a type of aimlessness because there is no final purpose or meaningful end. The walk of the Gentiles is nonsense because it is that of a transitory existence without any hope. Paul is saying to them that in Christ, this is no longer the case. Life application. What is a vain existence? Choose any Hollywood idol. They are handsome. They are beautiful. They are rich. They are famous. They have everything that could be desired from a worldly standpoint. Okay? And yet, they have no end purpose and thus no hope. They marry and they divorce with alacrity. They drink heavily and often turn to homosexuality or some other type of void, other perversion to trying to fill the void which can never be filled apart from Jesus Christ. In Christ, we have our void filled. The things of this world no longer seem pleasing, and our walk is directed anew to the eternal. How marvelous it is to know that there is more than just a temporary walk of futility ending in oblivion. And, you know, I think that I, I look at these things, and what was it, uh, this guy, Ben uh, Affleck, He's dating now again, or maybe married, or Jennifer Lopez. They were married before. Both of them got divorced. They married 10 other people in the meantime. Now they're back together again. It's, I know this because I read mail online to get articles for Sunday, and they're all over it. Perfect couple back together. They'll be divorced five minutes from now because there's no hope in what they're doing. It's not that they don't love. It's not that they don't have joy and happiness and sadness and all the things that everybody else does, but there's no end purpose. And because of that, and with all the money and, and wealth that they have, they have nothing to fall back on when bad times come. And so they just look for something else to excite them. And it's a very sad, vapid existence. It's very sad. Okay, 418. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening okay this one says the blindness of their heart so you've got either the blindness of the heart or you've got the hardening of the heart and we'll find out which one it is in a second i don't remember i typed this eight years ago uh this is somewhat difficult verse unless the parallelism is understood there are four separate clauses in this verse the first and the third are connected as are the second and the fourth now that i've said that i'll read it again and then i'll show you how they're connected okay this is verse 18 having their understanding darkened being alienated from the life of God, because of them, the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. Okay, so one, having under their understanding darkened, and then three, because of the ignorance that is in them. And then go back to two, being alienated from the life of God, four, because of the blindness of their heart. You can see how he's making parallelism. One is explaining the other. And in parallel, they are saying the same thing and repeating it for us to understand. But you have to see the structure. The words are speaking of the rest of the Gentiles of the previous verse. We talked about the Gentiles who are in Christ, in Ephesus, and the hope they have. And then Paul spoke about the others who are living in futility. There is an ignorance of God which is found in the unregenerate man. This is especially so because as the ages have passed, man has lost more and more of the knowledge of God which was originally known. There was a time when a Messiah was anticipated. And we know that even outside of the covenant people, listen, 
Abraham had to be called by God out of idolatry. And we know that from Judges, I think it's chapter 7, is it, where uh, maybe it was uh, 24. Anyway, our fathers, Terah and Joshua 24. I said Judges, I meant Joshua. Thank you. Joshua 24. Uh, they were called out of idolatry and into God's covenant. But Job is not in that covenant line, and yet he had the hope of Messiah. So we know that the knowledge of Messiah existed in people groups throughout the world. Job is a classic example of that. If you don't believe me, go read Job 19. But, okay, so I'll read that again so you know where I'm going with this. This is especially so because the eight, as the ages have passed, man has lost more and more of the knowledge of God which was originally known. There was a time when Messiah was anticipated, especially in the covenant line, but also with people outside of it. As the nation spread out, that knowledge was replaced with other forms of worship, which were based on works rather than the anticipation of one who would restore all things. And I can tell you that every place, and I have not been all over the whole world, but every place I have been, the people are anticipating something after this life, and it is always based on something they have done. Always. And every religion that I have studied, which is not all the religions of the world, but many of them, every single one of them has that in common. Every single one of them. That we are doing something in order to please God. Every single one of them. The only exception is that God has done everything in order to reconcile us to himself through Jesus Christ. That is the single unified message that goes from Genesis 3 verse 15 to the very last verse of the Bible. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. It's from the promised seed all the way through. Every single word of this book is I am going to do something. The law was introduced as a tutor to teach us about the grace of God, but even the law, the time of the law, was a time of grace. And we know that because they had the Day of Atonement. They had the sacrificial system that took care of their sins until the coming of Messiah. So even the law itself was not of works. It was always, always of grace. It was God reaching down to man and saying, I am going to restore you to myself. Here is how I'm going to do it. And all of that was in anticipation of Jesus to come. Okay, so the nation spread out. They lost that knowledge. Eventually, their understanding became darkened, as Paul says, because of the ignorance that is in them. They could no longer perceive any of the things of God. If one understands that God has a plan, then they will at least in part trust that the plan is working out. However, if life is just a thing, which we must suffer through, and if God is out there, but not working a good end for all things, then the understanding becomes more and more darkened. Like I said, ask the guy yesterday, you know, what's going to happen when you die? Oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go be with God. Well, why? Because I'm a good guy. Well, I, I'm not the one to judge that either way, but I can tell you that you are not a good judge of that, because you're looking at it from your own perspective. So everything is going to be skewed from your own perspective. And when God looks at you, he is certainly going to see every fault and every blemish. And you need Jesus. Okay, every possible, here it is. I just said it and here it is. Every possible religious expression will come about as people make stuff up in order to satisfy the empty void of the thought of a life without hope. Muslims make up a system of submission, which supposedly offers a free ticket to paradise and 72 awaiting perpetual virgins for any who die in the good cause in the cause of their God. Hindus made up a system of reincarnation and the worship of 340 million 
different gods. The list goes on and on. The true knowledge of God is darkened from their understanding because of the ignorance that is in them. That is what Paul is speaking about, the ignorance. As a result of this, Paul says they are alienated, alienated from the life of God because of the blindness of their heart. Okay? The term the life of God is unique in the Bible, but it is based on the the truth of Jesus Christ, a thought which permeates Scripture. In John 1, 4, the life is revealed. Let me read that to you. John 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. John 1, Paul, start in verse 1, and we'll get down to verse 4. And in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Here it is, verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Verse 5, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. John 1, 4, the life of God is revealed. It is the promise of the Messiah that kept the ancients directed toward the life of God. They had hope in the fact that God was working out a plan. They trusted that God was just, fair, and righteous. In this, they understood that he would do the right thing. Their faith in what was coming kept them in his favor. Their faith and their faith alone. Hebrews 11 shows us that. Chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews. People from both inside the covenant line and from without, such as Rahab the harlot, understood that God had a plan. They trusted it and were deemed faithful. Their hearts were not blinded to this life of God. Hebrews 11, the first words you're going to see of every person mentioned in Hebrews 11 says what? By faith. By faith, Noah. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Sarah. By faith, Rahab the harlot. doesn't matter who. By faith. Every single one of those people were people of faith in what God had promised and what he would deliver through his people, meaning the Messiah. Okay? They were not blinded to this life of God. However, there were those who were and are alienated from it. Their hearts are blinded through a lack of knowledge. In this lack of knowledge, they cannot exercise faith in God. This is the state of those who simply live out their existence making stuff up or following made-up stuff and perishing apart from God. It is the life of death leading to death. Paul will explain the result of such a life. Life application. The words here follow along very well with the words of Romans chapter 1, especially starting in verse 18. Take time to read it. That's I'm going to just do that now. I gave you a life application, but because you're not reading this, but we're having it in class, we'll just go there right now. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. As I said to that guy yesterday, have you ever told a lie? Yes. Then you've broken the entire law. James says if you've broken one command, you've broken the whole law. The wrath of God is revealed, as it says, from heaven against all ungodliness. A lie is ungodliness, okay? It's just one lie, but it is ungodliness, and God is wrathful at our sin. All it took was just one sin of Adam to bring the entire world into the state it's in right now. Every single bad thing that has ever happened happened because one man did one thing in disobedience, and at the time, he did not have the knowledge of good and evil. But the whole creation was brought into cataclysm because of that. And we're all living out the effects of it because of that. So the wrath of God, again, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men 
who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. I love to bring up the bumblebee in my mind and when I talk to people about God. Based on that verse, it says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by things that are made. If you think about a bumblebee and all of the things that are connected to a single bumblebee, you think of the wisdom of God. And that's just one little thing that does one little thing in all of this world, okay? A bumblebee has so much wisdom in it. It has so much skill in its design. It does a certain thing. It goes out and it pollinates. It causes other things to grow. It produces honey that gives you energy. Honey does not degrade. They find honey in pots in China that's 3,000 years old, and it is still honey. It is amazing what God has done with the bumblebee. Flowers are more radiant because they pollinate, and the next flower comes out, and it's been pollinated, and it has fruit in it because the bumblebee did that. And you just think of the wisdom of just that one little thing, that one little thing that zings around your head, and you think of all that it does, and then put that into all of the wisdom of the whole world, and you can say, this did not happen by chance. I don't care how many billions and billions and billions of years, it could not have happened by random chance. There is design, there is purpose in everything that happens, starting with the little bumblebee. Okay, and God has a sense of humor. I know he does because he created squirrels too. But it's just everything about, cre oh, I've got to continue on with that. Um, uh, because they, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened professing to be wise. Now think of anybody in a, a college right now, including a lot of Christian colleges, they profess to be wise. They became fools and changed the glory of God, the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible men and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Or it could be an idol of mind. Like I love to use Cambridge for the sermons on Sunday because Cambridge has the idol of the mind. They may not be worshiping idols when they're making their Bible commentaries, but they are certainly worshiping themselves. And you've seen that many times when I've referenced the writings of Cambridge, is that they think so highly of themselves that they diminish the Word of God, and they tear it apart. And they say, this isn't original. This, is, this was written by somebody in the year, blah, blah, blah. And you know, the funny thing is, if you look at it, and the chiasms are a good example, Cambridge and the, the people under the uh, documentary hypothesis, which means that there's four different people that wrote the Old Testament, the, the Torah, the five books of Moses, and they go by J-E-D-P. They say J is the Jehovah's. Anytime it says L-O-R-D, Lord, Jehovah, that's J. That guy wrote this. And then they have E, the Elohists. Anytime you see the name Elohim, God, that was written by an Elohist. And then D is the Deuteronomist. He wrote these parts of the book of Deuteronomy. And then you have P, which is the priestly people. And they inserted all the priestly stuff. And that's what they say. And they'll say that this line was written by a J person, and this line was written by a E person. And then you find, while you're going through the Bible, a chiasm that nobody's ever seen before. You know what the chiasms are, okay? And the chiasm spreads out, and it doesn't just cover that nonsense. It covers chapters of the Bible. 
chapters of it. And it is perfectly designed so that when you see it laid out, you say, that is wisdom. Nobody's seen that in 3,000 years. All of a sudden, somebody finds a chiasm, and it completely dispels the myth of people like the Cambridge scholars who come in. Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. let me show you really quickly. It's yeah. worth it's worth That's showing. I, I, I've got them down here. I've got some examples, and if after the class you uh, ask me, I'll give you some of them. But here's what it is. It'll say, and these are all through the Bible. This is in both Testaments. Some of them span books. Some, many of them span chapters within books. It'll say something like, um, uh, Charlie is handsome. Charlie is handsome. This is verse, uh, uh, we'll say, uh, Deuteronomy 15.3, okay? And then this is verse 4. And then it'll say, Charlie is smart. And it'll say, Charlie is smart. I'm just giving an example just because I can't think well. And then it'll say here, Charlie is rich. Charlie is rich. And then it'll say here, Charlie is really boastful. Charlie is really boastful. And it'll, some of them will go, the entire flood of Noah. The entire flood from chapter 7, I think, all the way through about, what's that? 6. It may start in 6. I'm not sure when the chiasm starts, but the, the flood starts. And, oh, he's got some right here. He'll show you. Um, uh, it, it, the whole flood of Noah spans or a chiasm spans the entire flood of Noah. It's a very, very interesting pattern. So there you go. And there are there are literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of chiasms all through the Bible. John chapter 1, the whole John chapter 1 makes a chiasm, okay? Paul's writings make chiasms in order. It just goes like this sometimes. It, it, it's incredible to see them. And once you start thinking about them, this is the thing about it. You know, if you've never heard of it, you're, you're not looking for it. But once you've heard of a chiasm, if you read the Bible a lot, you will start thinking and you say, I've read that before. Yeah, and then, yeah, and then, you know, that's what Sergio did. Yeah. He heard about chiasms and so he started looking and he sent me one. He says, I think there's a chiasm in here, but I don't know how to draw it out, my friend in Israel. And so we sat down together over the uh, messaging and we pulled one out. And there it is. It's this beautiful thing. And there are websites on the internet where they people will they'll find a chiasm and they will post it to that website and so they have just they're everywhere yeah. Yeah, but you got to be careful because some people will try to force them and you don't want to do that you want to be very careful but uh uh anyway that's chiasms and so that type of thing completely dispels the myth of like the documentary hypothesis it shows it to be a lie and that God's wisdom is revealed, not just in creation, but in his word as well. So there you go. Um, let's see here, Rob, John 1, 4. Where was I? Um, I mentioned, uh, oh yes, chapter uh, 1, verse 18 of Romans. We went through that a little bit. Take time to read these two passages side by side and think on how perfectly they reflect the sentiments of the people of the world. The Bible is God's instruction manual for mankind. You call it the basic instruction what is it be ideally oh, basic, basic instruction. instructions before leaving earth yes basic instructions before leaving earth bible okay the bible is god's instruction manual for mankind as this is so it should perfectly reflect the world around us and it does it doesn't just reflect the world around us it reflects the state of man the condition that we're in it explains the it explains every philosophical scientific discipline to some extent that we could think of. It's all there in the wisdom of God. Now, it doesn't specifically say somebody's going to invent electricity and you got to be careful putting your finger into a <laughs> socket. It doesn't do that kind of thing, but it gives you general truths 
that we can know that the wisdom of God is revealed in it, okay? As this is so, it should perfectly reflect the world around us, and it does. Pay heed. God is speaking to us so that we can learn. In that learning, we can then have the knowledge to hopefully pull others out of the blinded, hardened life in which they exist. Okay, before we go on, we have, um, uh, I just read something I wanted to, God is speaking to us, learning. We, uh, I had a great thought for you all, and now it's just gone right out of my head. Well, why are you oh, doing that? No, Charles? I remember. That's, yeah, I was going to tell him, just so you know, the chiasm. The reason why it's called a chiasm is because the Greek letter key, it forms an X, and you can see how it kind of makes an X there, okay? So that's why it's called a chiasm, okay? Go ahead. And what I always think of those things that is that it's like, okay, I'm seeing a tapestry. It's telling me a story, but if I look real close at the, 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 the threading, and it all has a pattern, it's like, okay, so there's more to this. That's right. Just what I'm looking at or reading it. There's like there's there's structure to this marvelous this thing. marvelous gift. <laughs> so it's a, it's kind of crazy when you start seeing it. But I I had no idea what they were until like. Good stuff. <laughs> Good stuff. Okay, verse nineteen. Verse and we've 19. got we got we'll get one more verse done. Okay, nineteen. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality, so that so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. Okay, this one is completely differently written, uh, written, but, and two of the thoughts are not the same, but the rest of them are. Okay, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness. That one said sensuality. Yeah. This one says lewdness, and lewdness I think is probably a little, it may not be, we'll, we'll read it and we'll find out. And then to work all uncleanness with greediness. And yours said, what, instead of greediness, what? Lust for more. Lust for more. That's right. So that's kind of the same. Okay, so here we go. As we analyze this verse, think of the world in which we live. Think of those who it describes and the position they hold within our society. Now, remember, I read, wrote this eight years ago, so things have changed a lot, but okay. They will be analyzed at the end in relation to the verse. The who of this verse is giving a description of the rest of the Gentiles of verse 17, okay? Who? Who had been alienated from God and blinded in verse 18. So you got the Gentiles who are alienated from God and blinded, okay? Paul now describes what those actions result in. He says they, being past feeling, have come to a state of perversion, which is the normal result of life without God. The single word from which being past feeling derives, okay, in the Greek sometimes one word will express five in the English, whatever, okay, indicates the cessation of feeling pain. They no longer feel pain. It is only used here in the New Testament, and it is being used to express a sense of having no shame or empathy at all. The person simply ceases to care about anything morally upright, okay? Now, that is really going on in the world today. It's getting more and more so with every day that passes by, but we'll go on. Paul also says that they have given themselves over to lewdness. Every week when I do the report, okay, I say the same thing. I don't say it every week, but I say it quite often. I cannot believe what I'm reading today that two years ago I would not have even thought possible in the world in which we live. I could not have imagined for the life of me the things that I am telling people are happening in the world now that I, I wouldn't have even imagined possible, okay? And having said that, and I, I'm sure I've said that in this class before, 
but it's worth repeating, is that I read every single day probably 200 news articles, maybe more. But I read things that are so gross, so perverted, and so lacking any humanity at all that I can't believe that I'm reading them. There are things that I would never say to anybody, things that people do you know, to other people, that they do to their own children. That, and it's so bad. When I get done reading all of my news reports every day, it takes me about an hour and an hour and a half every single day, I have to go lie down on the couch and I have to just not think for about 20 minutes to get out of my head because it is debilitating what human beings are capable of. And it's just getting worse. Every single day I get up and I think, oh, I can't be worse than yesterday. And it's always worse. Okay. They have given themselves over to lewdness. I know I've said this before, at least in uh, a previous class, maybe when we were back at Grace 10 years ago. But when I first uh, came back to Sarasota, we had Comcast cable and they raised the rates a little bit. And that was fine. And they raised the rates another year. And that was fine. I never mind because it's a private business and they need to make money. And then one year, Sarasota County said, we want to have our own channel on Comcast TV. They want that, you know, the uh, commissioners wanted to be on TV. So they said, we want our own channel and we will not bid out your, you know, against Paragon and Comcast. We will not bid out a renewal of your contract if you will give us a channel of our own. And Comcast said, yes, but it will cost $5 more for everybody in Sarasota. And they said, okay, that's fine. And so that day I called them up and I said, I'm canceling my subscription. You have taxed us when it wasn't a tax. It was just you doing something for the commissioners that wanted to be on TV. And she said, I've never had so many cancellations ever in a single day. I said, there is a difference between every one of those people and me. I will not be back. And I didn't go back for about 10 or 12 years. My daughter grew up. She went to college. And one day she did something really stupid. And so I got in my car and I drove at seven o'clock in the morning. I drove 10 hours to get to Chattanooga, Tennessee. I had dinner with her and I drove back home and I got down to Georgia and I was so tired. I had to stop and I went into a hotel and I was on the bed and I turned on the TV and I could not believe what I was watching on regular TV. Not prime TV, not any, you know, I could not believe what they were showing. It was MTV. I used to watch MTV. And then I stopped watching for about 10 years. And I turned on MTV and I could not believe what I was seeing. I couldn't believe it. I said, is this, is this the same world? Because I haven't watched TV in 10 years. But everybody they've been watching didn't realize that they had just been going downhill. They just lived with it. I didn't. I was outside of it. And so I think this every single day when I'm looking at these news articles, how quickly things are degrading. Okay, so having said that, the word, uh, yes, um, uh, used to speaking when uh, Paul also says they have given themselves over to lewdness. That's his words. The word translated as having have given themselves over is used when speaking of Christ giving himself up for the world. It is also the same word used in Romans one twenty four, which speaks of God giving up the reprobate to their own uncleanness. When a person gives himself up to evil, then their creator gives them over to the power of evil. It is a synergistic occurrence. That means working together, synergism, working together, okay? God doesn't just force them into that. They have asked for it. God allows them to do it, okay? There is a complete surrender on one part, and there is a complete letting go on the other. They surrendered themselves to evil. God says, have it your way. And that's what's happening in the world more and more every day. This giving over to 
lewdness is what Paul is speaking of. The Greek word which indicates violent spite, which rejects restraint, lewdness, and indulges in lawless insolence or wanton caprice. That's from Helps Word Studies. That's their analysis of that Greek word. Anything perverse and disgusting is pursued with reckless abandon. In this attitude, it becomes evident that any who do not follow their path would then be considered outside of what is now normal. Their lawlessness becomes the standard of law. Once again, think of what's going on in the world right now, in the governments of states and the federal government right now. Their lawlessness becomes the standard of law. Paul next says that these people are set to work, Paul's words, to work all uncleanness with greediness. The word for work here indicates in a trade or in business. They're actually dealing as if in trade in greediness, okay? The immoral working of these people actually stands as their life's work and goal. Just as a carpenter works in carpentry and his life means, his life's mean of expression, the immorality of these people stands for the very expression of who they are. It is as if they wake up in the morning and put on uncleanness and greediness as their own clothes. The uncleanness that Paul stated here uh, speaks of ritual impurity. When a person is in this state, that person is unacceptable to bring any offerings to God. That goes back to Leviticus. Any person with a boil, any person with tsa'arat or leprosy, any person with uh, you know, in the mission of semen, or that is, and all these different things. You cannot bring an offering to God during that time of uncleanness. That is what this is speaking of. I'll read that again. The uncleanness stated here speaks of ritual impurity. When a person is in this state, they are unacceptable to bring offerings to God. They have become defiled and outcasts from anything sacred. It is as if they have an open and running infection, or they have been in direct contact with a corpse, the highest penalty for sin being death, and thus they are utterly defiled. The word for greediness is commonly translated as covetous. They have and they want more. They grasp after uncleanness as if a treasure is to be found and put on display. The New King James Version says, with greediness, but in Greek it is the word en or in, in greediness. It is their very state of mind to act wickedly and to hunger after more wickedness. It should be noticed in this verse that it doesn't say that they have become stupid, as if their blindness has destroyed their intellectual capacity to reason. Rather, he focuses on the moral degradation which their state leads to. Now, think of anybody that you disagree with on a moral issue, whether it's in government or whether it's, you know, your boss. That person did not become stupid. That person has just become immoral. That person has become wicked. And Adolf Hitler was not a stupid person, was he? Okay, he was an intelligent human being, but he was morally corrupt. And with more moral corruption, his intelligence is being used for a more and more moral corrupt society. And the people around him, the same thing. And that's what happens in the world, all right? People don't lose their intelligence, but they do lose their moral grounding. This is the most dangerous place of all. They have the intellectual ability to think, but they do not use it for reasoning. Instead, they use it for that which is wholly perverse and which stands in opposition to God. Having looked at the substance of the words and having been asked to evaluate who these words describe, have any examples come to mind just while you're sitting here listening? 
It is as obvious as it could be in today's world that those on the left, the so-called progressives, are being minutely described. They have now come out. I mean, they've openly admitted in Congress that we are pursuing socialism. Socialism is the same thing as pursuing communism. And communism led to the death of 25 million people in the state of Russia alone. And that is because they believe that their moral position allows them to do the unthinkable. And this is where we are heading in this nation. It's where they're heading in nations all around the world at this point. They've openly come out and said, we want to follow this agenda. We are looking at the ideal. China, Russia in the past, which had kind of failed, but it's still an ideal in Russia. But we're looking at that, and that is what we want. And these people will do exactly the same thing that has happened in every other socialist state in the world. They will start persecuting their people. Eventually, they will start killing their people. And then the society will be in total disarray. It happens again and again. And it's just like sticking your finger in the wall socket today and getting up in the morning and doing it again. It will not change. The path will always be the same. Okay? They wantonly seek after the destruction of human life through abortion. And yet they are past feeling with regard to the murder of life. It becomes a sensation to count the dead and then to add more to the list. They promote every sexual vice known to man and they force it on everyone around them. We see that every Sunday in the report. That which is wholly vile and vulgar is that which they proclaim as morally just. In so doing, they make those who follow the proper moral path to be the outlaws. Think of what I said about give Christianity the finger at 11 o'clock today. If their stand is argued against, they use the political and judicial process to silence their opponents. I wrote this eight years ago. Imagine what it was like to, compared to now. They work out their iniquity as if drinking in water, and they spew out their vile behavior in an open sight of the whole world through movies, public displays of sensuality, and even through the use of the news media. Impurity is their state of mind, and they are wholly unclean to God. And yet they continue down their path of vile behavior, being self-condemned, and yet reveling in this path to perdition. A more fitting description of those on the left could not be found anywhere in the world today, and yet Paul wrote these words 2,000 years ago. The ways and paths of man are seen at all times in those who reject God and who pursue this aberrant course of moral perversity to its logical end. Life application, we're just on time now, too. Life application, the closer you associate yourself with the progressives of the world, the more wicked and unclean you will become. It's not a matter of if, it is a matter of when. It will happen. You will become. Tying oneself into their path ultimately ties in, results in a tie, which becomes harder and harder to sever. Think carefully on who you support for one reason or another, and rather look at their overall agenda. Do you stand with God? Then stand apart from those who are wholly opposed to him. That's not meant to be a political uh, diatribe. It's just the state of the world. And this was, I reported on this two months ago, Cy Herlong, 1964, introduced those into the congressional records of the United States Congress. And he said, this is what's coming. Be ready for it. And the guard was let down and we are facing right now what he said was going to be introduced by the communists in the world. And it has happened, and that's where we are. And, you know, people, every day I get an email, and I'm so tired of this world, and I hope Jesus comes soon. And I do, too. But I'm not going to tell anybody that he's coming tomorrow or 
in two days or in two years or in 20 years. I, that's not my business. My business is to say that we need to stand on what is morally right at all times. We need to protect the life in the womb. We need to work against those that are going to say that the message of the Bible is archaic, that it is obsolete. It is the most relevant word that man will ever possess because it is from the mind of God. So we need to hold fast to this truth, whether it's in government, whether it's at work, whether it's just talking with people on the street. Never waffle in your conviction of the sacredness of this word, okay? That is what I would ask you. Learn this word, think on this word, listen to it when you're driving. If you don't have an audio Bible, go get one. They're not expensive. You can even download them from the internet for free. Listen to it. Let the word of God dwell in you richly. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this precious word. We thank you that we have a chance to come into your presence and to share it. And Lord, I would certainly pray for anybody that has uh, clicked onto this video today or at some point in the future and is wondering about the message of Ephesians. It's the united message of the whole Bible. You love us enough to pull us out of our state, our depraved state of wickedness and wrongdoing and to bring us back to yourself through the goodness of your giving Jesus to us. Thank you for the shed blood of Christ that reconciles us to you. Thank you for what he did and thank you for the lamb who has prevailed to the glory of God forever and ever. We praise you. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Turn this off here. This up. Okay, make sure you say goodbye to the folks online here before break. Not yet.